Welcome back to another episode of the Ed Command. We got Pete and Brian in studio here to go over the precepts of the church today. So we're going to cover the first two of them. So they're uh, known here in Lesson 21 as the first and second commandments of the church. But before we get started, I want to make sure, hey guys, subscribe to the channel. Make sure to throw comments to us when you got questions, issues, complaints, whatever. And then, uh, yeah, check us out on Restoring the Faith. We're out there. Uh, we're on SoundCloud, iTunes. Um, probably look at some other providers here coming up. But at least there. Start there. We enjoy having you and hopefully you enjoyed this lesson as well as uh, all the other stuff we have out there. So, all right, without further ado, question 279. Whence has the Catholic Church the right to make laws? The Catholic Church has the right to make laws from Jesus Christ, who said to the apostles, the first bishops of his church, whatever you bind on earth shall also be bound in heaven. So this is one of the key disputes that we have with Protestants who don't understand what the nature of the divine institution that is the church. They don't understand it at all. The, I don't understand from my perspective here, why they don't see the association of, Hey, you know, when a King stands up like a new organization or he knights someone or he says, Hey, this body now carries my authority. So listen to them. Um, we would respect that here in a temporal sense, like say, I don't know, for some reason we still listen to the EPA for whatever reason, (laughs) but you know, so we expect that, you know, that a, a government can set up other things and we follow it. But for some reason, Protestants don't see the notion that Christ could stand up a church and then delegate. Well, it actually collapses their entire argument because that would take, that would take into account that Christ alone isn't alone in the endeavor. It pleases him to have us participate <laughs> in the process, right, in salvation. Uh, it gives glory to him that he could take such a wretched creature like uh, myself uh, and, God willing, uh, you know, I, I, I do his will, <laughs> participate. Um, and that's contrary to everything a Protestant uh, believes because it's it's Bible alone, it's Christ alone, it's a lot of alones, uh, but it's never uh, it's never a common sense approach. Whereas even Protestants have to, I think, admit the existence of angels, right? The nine choirs. To some extent. To but, some extent, yeah. but if they, but if you believe in the nine choirs of angels, uh, what are they doing? Are they just hanging around watching Christ work? Or are they functioning in some capacity? Are they participating in some mandate? With delegated authority to take care of specific jobs. Yeah. Almost like heaven is work. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Like it's an organization, right? And if you have that in the spiritual sense, uh, or at least in the unseen parts of creation, then in the seen, created temporal sense, uh, we do this in the natural way by governments, as you, you know, just said. And we do this within the household. We do this in every part of human capacity why not have some functionaries to make things run it baffles me uh and I, as a prior protestant uh it, this was never one of my hang-ups in, in converting to the church it just made sense to me i can't just call the president of the united states uh to appeal to his mercy or graces i have to go through a a, a series of people intermediaries yeah and, and they have functioning authority and positions yeah, and I think we, as long as we understand, yes, that the institution exists, the institution then can delegate and can create its own laws to augment and complement. And I think uh, used to it from the government side where we see 
every subordinate commander has the capacity to make a new rule that is more restrictive. What is it? And it's more restrictive? More restrictive than what they got from above. They can never remove the stuff they got from above. Or countermand it. Or countermand it. And in the same vein, this is one of the other things that uh, we can stomp on here. Um, the clerics are not allowed, from the standpoint of God, to correct or change something that God has given us. So they may do it. We see it often with prelates who are not acting faithful, who are not adhering to the commandments of Christ. However, their failures to do what they're supposed to do does not mean that the church doesn't exist. She does. Or that they don't have the authority to actually work within the bounds given them by Christ to actually give rules like, say, I don't know, canon law (laughs) and how we provision our feast days and things like that. Some of those are flexible in terms of how they're done, and that is within the realm of the, I guess, the window dressing almost. It's an execution type. Yeah, it's a legitimate exercise of authority. Yeah. You know, versus if uh, if a prelate or a priest was way off the rails, uh, you actually have a duty to disobey. It technically, quote, air quotes, disobey, uh, to resist Peter to his face in some cases. Yeah, if they're out of line and no longer doing as Christ commanded, then our goal is to follow what Christ said within the confines of the church. We still have to remain within the mystical body. We still have to be obedient to these precepts that we're talking about, the Ten Commandments. We still have obligations to be virtuous, but just because a guy has some authority doesn't mean we do everything he says. So Pope gives us a bad commandment we're like, no, I don't have to listen to that. It's not an infallible thing. So because he's making a statement with an opinion, I don't have to care. And so when the church is allowed to make rules, all those church rules must abide by everything that God's given us. So they got to be congruent. If they're not, then we have other difficulties to deal with. But again, the whole point is, is the church has legitimate authority within the bounds that God has given her. So This goes in, we'll go more detail as to who can make those rules. Question 280 here. By whom is this right to make laws exercised? This right to make laws is exercised by the bishops, the successors of the apostles, and especially by the Pope, who, as the successor of the chief of the apostles, St. Peter, has the right to make laws for the universal church. Um, They are using here the... Gospel of Matthew, so 1818, talking about binding and loosing, and also, I think it's in, isn't it 16, 19, and 20? They talk about the binding and loosing as well, Matthew? I think so. And then here, they're talking about Peter being the rock upon which uh, the church would be built. And even though, yes, Christ is absolutely our rock from the standpoint of we're attached to him, he's the foundation for everything we do, the thing was, is when he was going up to heaven awaiting the fulfillment of all things and prophecies before he would return, the church is here in his stead, which he needed someone to rule vicariously in his place, say a vicar, and then that was going to be the Pope. And the rock then we were given as the first Pope then was Peter, whose name means rock. That's where this whole thing fits. Now, the verbiage that's being used in Matthew to describe the church, the Pope, um, things like that, actually comes out of Isaiah 22. So if you look at the end of Isaiah 22, it talks about the Holy Father, is how they referred to him, with the authority to bind and loose in the old church under the Mosaic law. (laughs) 
So this is only an extension, say a fulfillment, as Christ said he was going to do, of the old church in the, in the same way that Moses had authority to judge over Israel, the Pope has the authority to judge over the new Israel, as Paul talks about in Galatians. And the church is the new Israel. So what we're looking at here is the apostles being the the equivalent of lords. I mean, we talk about crowns in heaven. Um, they have substantial authority in terms of the ability, like, like I said, binding and loosing. Therefore, they actually can expel demons. <laughs> they can actually ask for help. And to be perfectly honest, any of them who are offering mass are commanding God, the Holy Spirit, to come down onto the host during mass. That's the only time they're allowed to command God. But it is not even the Blessed Mother had that. Yeah, it, it's a very unique situation because it, and at that point, the, the uh, priest, to be perfectly honest, is operating in persona Christi. So it is Christ at that point. It's, it's so cool, all the attachment there. Yeah. <laughs> so the priest acts in the person of Christ to command to get the Holy Ghost to do whatever and uh, come down so that the uh, incarnation happens again on the altar. And that's a lot of power handed to a man to say, hey, you get to call this. Well, if a man's given the power to command the Holy Ghost, it doesn't seem like that much of a stretch to say, oh, those men are also given power to make rules in their diocese, in their parishes, and so on. Yeah, bishop is, I mean, the princes of the church, right? If Christ is the king, it's just so common sense driven. <laughs> Somebody has to be in charge. It must be at some point. It must terminate somewhere. The buck stops somewhere. But anarchy's so fun. It is. It's all about <laughs> me, bro. <laughs> I do what I want. So, yeah, the, the hard part, I think that people don't really grasp and this is me coming from protestant side too so and and perhaps i'm projecting but we see everything is this weird little communal anarchy democracy for lack of a better term where we can do whatever we want as long as we all think together this is what we want but god never created anything like that at no point does he bring the apostles together and say all right 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 i'm not sure what to do here can you guys go and vote on this and tell me which way we're gonna you know proceed with this whole church and religion thing. No, he doesn't do that because he's king of kings. And that king of kings then has an institution that he builds, the church, that he says actually holds on to his authority. And that's where Christ builds a church with the intent that it should govern all affairs. It should be the holder, the keeper of the deposit of the faith. It ensures that truth will be promulgated henceforth until he returns that's its job so it has the power and the responsibility the obligation to correct us when we go astray with so, christ guarantee right the gates of hell will never prevail yeah it's kind of a big deal now does that mean that we'll always have a pope there not necessarily because we've had multiple periods where there hasn't been one and we've had multiple issues in terms of people adhering to rules and stuff like that which we're familiar with um, but all those things considered we know the church herself, as long as we are gauging based on our knowledge, trying to measure the prelates that we're dealing with and whatever else, we can get the truth if we want it, as long as we're sticking close to the sacraments, to the Blessed Mother, and so on and so forth. So the church is there. Her job is to keep us on the right path. So we just have to have faith in Christ that he meant what he said. And if we stay there in the church, we stay on home base, everything's going to work out. So to build on this, though, what is that church telling us to do? 
So we go to question 281. Which are the chief commandments or laws of the church? The chief commandments or laws of the church are these six, to assist at mass on all Sundays and holy days of obligation, to fast and to abstain on the days appointed, to confess our sins at least once a year, to receive holy communion during Easter time, to contribute to the support of the church, and to observe the laws of the church concerning marriage. So they're pretty straightforward, all things considered. This is classic Catholic C minus. I passed the class. I mean, seriously, if you reread these very slowly, look, look, guys, you got to go to church for an hour every week. Sometimes you go to church twice, very rarely throughout the year that week. Uh, we're down to what, like two fasting days per year? Yeah, Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty. My forefathers are rolling over in their grave when, you know, if I complain about that. They're a soft generation. Very, very soft. Uh, what's that? Confessing our sins once a year. If you are so saintly that you think that's uh, that's what you can get by on, I, I hate to break it to you, but you're not that saintly. Novus Ordo Catholics, looking at you. Make sure if you haven't been to confession in years for your soul, please Go talk to a priest and just confess what you can remember. It's fine, but we got to make it a habit. What Brian's getting at is like, we know on a daily basis, we commit sins all the time. Innumerable. <laughs> so whether we're talking <laughs> venial, and I hope it's mostly venial, I'd really love it to all be venial. There's mortal in there. You don't want to have one of those on your soul. So once a year, it's really risky <laughs> to live that life style. So you really want to make sure you're confessing more than, you know, once a year. Receive Holy Communion during Easter time. We really need to be striving to be in union with our Lord as often as possible. And although they limit it and say, yeah, you only are going to take communion or you only have to do it during the Easter time, we really need to be thinking about how we can be in union with him, body, blood, soul, and divinity as often as possible. And that means we are going to confession regularly to make sure we have no mortal sins. We are as pure as possible. We are reflecting and we are taking the time. And that also means fasting ahead of Mass are you know at least one hour or whopping one rule. hour <laughs> yeah you literally uh, talking to the priest when we came in uh, six years ago we we're uh going through all the catechism and stuff he's like yeah it's kind of a pitiful requirement because the old law uh old canon law in 1917 it was a three hour time frame no i think it was midnight was it midnight yeah i think it Pius changed it to three okay. hours so it was, either way, it was much longer. And the thing is, he's like, yeah, an hour makes it. So you literally, depending on the priests you're dealing with, you could finish your coffee on the steps up into church <laughs> and still have that done in time so that you can then take communion if the you got long homilies. So it's not that big of an ask. Yeah, the communion once a year, uh, I really think that's a throwback to some centuries past where it's like all right pete i'm going on the ship i'll be gone four months you know uh, i'm going to a place where there's no parish i think it's almost like an accommodation through different periods of church history i think it was more common for a long time to only receive three or four times a year yes to be perfectly honest um you're talking about the body blood soul and divinity of almighty god huge deal huge deal and in all seriousness uh all of us know that we are not perfect when we take that which means some part of us is offensive to him when we consume in oh, some sure. respect we're doing everything we can to try to avoid it but there's nothing uh that we can do to guarantee 100 percent that everything we're doing is completely in line and this is mentally and emotionally physically 
to make sure we're a hundred percent of what he wants. So what I remember, and I'm sorry, I don't have more detail on this. The reason it was rare was because of the fact that it was supposed to be this big preparation yeah. to make sure you're, body mind are all one together in keeping uh with christ so that when you partake in the sacrament and you bond yourself to him this is a deeply moving experience that you can focus on and get the maximum effect like take the the gravity of what's going on yeah it's, it's not that christ is lacking in the sacraments it's that our dispositions tend to be lacking in receiving and uh there was some strategy there but um Again, super easy. Go to confession during Lent. <laughs> receive communion during Easter. Uh, these aren't big asks. They're, they're and if you have money, you really should be giving some of your money to the church. Like they they run off of our funds that we provide. And I know some of you don't want necessarily want to go and donate to the diocese or some of the weird causes that they've come up with as of late. But you can talk with your priests and figure out what they need and buy them things that will solve you know address their immediate problems so there are uh and there's time there's there's ways that you can support the church that aren't financial either if you're really tight on money but you got to find some way to give of all the blessings and gifts you've been given find a way to give some of those back to your parish and to your diocese uh, so that the church continues going because you're helping the priest uh to get the sacraments and sacramentals out to other people is his all spiritual well-being type of thing. And also then to observe the laws of the church concerning marriage. Just do what they say. <laughs> Make sure <laughs> be cognizant of the uh, conditions for chastity and marriage and that you're focusing on your station in life and that some people are single or some people are religious and some people are married and understand the distinctions therein and then abide by those commandments in terms of how we're supposed to partake of the sacrament, etc. I think that's the sleeper requirement. Uh, the, the rest seems super easy until you get to marriage. That was hard. Uh, it, it's a cross to bear. Uh, you're yoked with another human being to get each other through life to heaven. Uh, way easier said than done. And uh, I think today we're looking at the, the fallout of probably 50 years of bad catechesis on marriage and uh, marriage prep especially. People see it too much like a burden as opposed to its own gift. Because to be perfectly honest, I would sit there and say that it's not that I'm uh, a perfect man by any stretch. And I totally have had moments where I see parts of uh, marriage, uh, the home life is burdensome. It's just, it's it's a thing. Um, but at the same token, I freely admit that without all of those challenges, there is no way that I would be the person that I am today oh, and the zero. amount of improvement that I have been able to gain from accepting the fact that I deserve <laughs> so much of the abuse and whatever it is, <laughs> whatever it is like, I, yeah, I did that as my fault. Yep. Um, it helps. It helps a lot. So it's just, this is a marriage is a good thing in the same way that, uh, I have to presume that the, uh, the lay single state or in the, religious state they all provide their own it's whatever we need from god in terms of how we're supposed to acquire our graces and complement his creation and to fulfill his commandments prophecies the way he sees all this uh playing out and to glorify him in the end absolutely marvel at uh the combination god has given me between my wife and i and how 
awesomely obvious. She, not that she points it out, but I see my own defects in comparison. Uh, just those moments of, of married life throughout the day when it's like, wow, I'm such a jerk. I really need to figure this piece <laughs> out. Or, you know, because when you're married with somebody, you know, you tend to see things more clearly. Oh, yeah. Uh, if you want to feel incompetent and not good enough, other than listening to Father Relia, uh, yeah. <laughs> you, you just have to be, uh, look at your, uh, your significant other, your spouse, uh, or your kids. And that's the easiest way to feel not good enough and no man i got a lot of lot of stuff to work on yeah a long path ahead but to end on a positive note i've learned so much about god from my kids just watching the relationship between us and uh you know even even a big obstinate dummy like myself can can get some complex things out of just hanging out with a toddler all right question 282 what sin does a catholic commit who through his own fault misses mass on a sunday or holy day of obligation a Catholic who, through his own fault, misses Mass on a Sunday or Holy Day of Obligation commits a mortal sin. Now, the only caveat I'd put here, and the only reason I'm caveating is because, at a minimum, we will absolutely agree it's a grave sin. <laughs> the problem here is the fact that, and going back to the catechesis problems, uh, without solid catechesis, we have individuals who are in a situation where they were never educated properly to understand that oh no missing mass is not like protestants we're like oh well whatever i'm just gonna go hang out no we've offended god because god gave us everything and we didn't go and give him his day so it's one of those things that are at a minimum we commit a grave sin if we miss mass this includes also the holy days of obligations of the six holy days uh which we're going to talk about in the next uh question here uh as well as sundays so it's important that if God gave us everything, the least we can do is give him <laughs> his holy days. Yeah, if you're a lapsed Catholic or if you attend the Novus Ordo, and a lot of this is perfectly new to you, uh, go back to prior lessons where we describe the conditions to make a mortal sin. I, I don't want anyone freaking out and, and beating down the door of the, you know, the priest, you know, trying to get him to the, to the confessional in the middle of the night. If you didn't know, you didn't know. But uh, I get this a lot from a lot of Novus Ordo Catholics where it's like, uh, what do we have in the Protestant side? It was the traditional Easter and Christmas you know, type folks. You just, can't, you just can't disregard a commandment of God. But if you do, and it's, uh, you know it's, it's grave <laughs> matter, right? you got to have the matter. And uh, you willfully choose to do it anyway. That's way different than just having an education issue where you just never properly taught. Yeah, so trying to help you out here. Uh, lesson six, by the way. So if you want to go back on the mortal sin and look at the differentiation between the uh, types of sin, um, that's where you'll find it. So hopefully that helps out. Again, ask questions if you have them, and make sure you always include your... Uh, think about asking your uh, priest as well, because they'll be able to help often. All right, so question 283. What are the holy days of obligation in the United States? Holy days of obligation in the United States are these six. This is Christmas Day. December 25th, the octave of the Nativity, January 1st, Ascension Thursday, 40 days after Easter, the Assumption, August 15th, All Saints Day, November 1st, and the Immaculate Conception, December 8th. Interesting factoid here. Uh, the rest of the world does not do the Immaculate Conception like we do. They have Corpus Christi <laughs> instead, which is also a very significant uh, first-class feast. But yeah, those days are really significant. Like, you wouldn't just like we were saying, there's some people who only go to Mass, Christmas and Easter, so at least they have that one covered. 
So the circumcision of Christ happens on that. That's the first of January. Um, Ascension Thursday, also a really big deal. Christ is going up to assume his throne in heaven. Really big deal. The assumption of Mary. So the only other, so of all the creatures, the only creature in heaven who has her body right now. Kind of a big deal. Kind of a big deal. And All Saints Day. Well, since it's all of them at once, that includes then angels in that mix. So that's a really big day as well. And then the Immaculate Conception. So, and I want to say that's because our nation is consecrated to the Immaculate Conception. I believe so. And so there's a significance for the United States there, which is why we celebrate that one. And again, the Immaculate Conception, just for everyone's edification, that is uh, Joachim and Anne. And so that's Mary's parents. When she's conceived, she is cleansed of original sin. And that is a big deal because no one else had that given to them. And so, and she is, according to, was it Our Lady of La Salette? She is the Immaculate Conception? There's a couple of them. That, one one of them in the 1850s. So it was Lord St. Bernadette. I know okay, that there we was go. the big one. But it yeah. happened elsewhere as well around that time frame. Um, I'm going to be that guy for a second and throw a stone at Ascension Thursday because there's nothing cooler than having Ascension Thursday move to Sunday because your bishop makes it even easier for you to fulfill this obligation. Um, I've seen that a couple of times in some places. Uh, this stuff is, is so minimal. Just go to church on Thursday and then go again on Sunday. <laughs> it, you need the grace. We all need the grace. So if we can get it, this is one of the reasons why I wish my career was more forgiving in this respect, where I would love to be able to do mass easily every day of the week. I'll be I would awesome. prefer it. Um, but here we are, and I think the thing we can rightly see with our situations is we put way too much emphasis on things that are not holy and things that are not of God, which is why we have so much trouble realigning our schedules to take on more masses and to receive those extra graces. But also further complicates it by... We have less choices these days, and sometimes having uh, opportune times scheduling for local parishes uh, just makes it difficult. I know two parishes closest to me, it's like, oh, we'll have Mass at noon. Like, that's cool. <laughs> like, how about before work? <laughs> that, that'd be nice. Yeah, it's kind of hard to break away to do the drive and then to sit there for anywhere between 35 minutes to an hour, depending on what's going on. So, yeah, it's... Again, these are all things we know what we have to do at a minimum on the holy days of obligation and Sundays. Make the time to go. And and even now, too, of all the times, like I don't know how long much longer it'll last, but for the moment, you still have vigil masses even. So you can do, <laughs> there are more days you can even use to go and fulfill your holy days of obligation. You think so, about that. They'd be even easier. Hey, if you don't like to get up on Sundays, we'll just do it Saturday night. <laughs> yeah. So... There are ways to do it, but you got to make sure that your priorities are focused on God and everything else will align. Um, specifically now, what does the, so this is question 284, what else does the church oblige us to do on holy days of obligation? The church obliges us to abstain from servile work on holy days of obligation, just as on Sundays, as far as we are able. So this is harder too, because going back to, well, what happens on Ascension Thursday and like, well, my boss isn't necessarily going to go and say, Hey, no, it's cool. You can go and you don't need to be here. Well, that's where they're talking about what you're able to do. If your employer is not going to allow you to take the day off, uh, et cetera, you know, got it. You can't really abstain from work that day. Um, and the rest of the world doesn't necessarily care about our holidays. Like our holy days to them are nothing. So, 
just know that if you can devote that day, your body, your mind and focus to God, which means we shouldn't be going and out and doing hard labor and sweating just for no reason. Question 285. Why were holy days instituted by the church? Holy days were instituted by the church to remind us of the mysteries of our religion and of the important events in the lives of Christ and his blessed mother and to recall to us the virtues and the rewards of the saints. So I think that kind of makes sense. If you just stop to think about it, going the commemorations, like um, we can read about the saints and learn our history and whatnot, but nothing really compares to going and celebrating a feast day in mass and the readings and just kind of getting, it's way more intimate. It's nice to take a day, right? Because yeah. if you're if you're pursuing holiness or you're pursuing the f- the faith full time, you're gonna sp- you'll set time aside in the morning, maybe some prayers. You'll read a little bit at some point, but it's nice to have an entire day where you can just dedicate the day. Uh, kids, you know, find something in the house to celebrate. Have it, uh, a local tradition or a family tradition. You can really bring it alive for the for the kids. But also, this is for me in tandem with uh, with the calendar. The church's calendar really kind of scales this up. We look at look at the seasons. You know, if these if the the holiday or the holy day falls within Lent, uh, does it fall within Advent? Is it? You know, you just gotta just embrace it and, and take the time out. It really is. These days are are magnificent on their own, but together with the calendar, it can really take your faith to the next level. Two eighty six. What is a fast day? A fast day is a day on which only one full meal is allowed, but in the morning and evening some food may be taken, the quantity and quality of which are determined by the approved local custom. This one cracks me up. I've been hanging out more and more with our Byzantine brothers, and uh, over the last couple of years, I'm like, my only thought is the West has fallen. <laughs> I mean, these guys are so hardcore comparatively to the minimum standards we have today. The main thing you got to think of here is that if you have a full belly, you cannot be that close to Christ. It's very similar to the rich man. How do I get close to you? And he's like, give up all your stuff. Well, in the same vein, if you are completely attached to your fleshly carnal comforts, there's not going to be an easy way you can get outside of that to be united with the divinity of Christ. So if you struggle with some of these sins, the prescription from all the saints is always the fast, right? If you struggle with gluttony, you struggle with slothfulness, you struggle with lust, well, fast, uh, deprive your body, get it into submission. Yeah. Cause if you have the willpower to put up with the inconvenience, because it doesn't even necessarily hurt all the time. And don't get me wrong. There are people out there who actually, it does physically cause a great amount of pain whenever they're fasting. Um, for all of you that don't have that issue, you should really try it because if you can go and discipline yourself to put up with that inconvenience and the stomach aching and all the other things that go along with it, there's a lot of fruit that can be gained there because at a, even at a minimum, even if for some reason you didn't even have the spiritual, there is an accomplishment there that you can be happy about when you're done, that you did something that was very disciplined, that wasn't easy, that most people aren't doing and you succeeded there. Granted, I would not sit there and say that it was, a result of all of you 
I believe that, you know, internal to ourselves, we don't have the strength to, I think, do all this on our own. The only way this happens is because of grace, because of the fact that there are guardian angels that are doing prayers for you. We have devotions to our saints and so on and so forth. But either way, just it's good. It's a good thing to do to actually fast just as much as it is the lighter version of that is the abstinence from meat is it's just an inconvenience like fridays are difficult because of the inconvenience because you're sitting there going like ah i just wanted a normal sandwich from whatever my restaurant was i was going to go to but i can't now (laughs) and you have your staples you're like i just want a steak it's just it's relaxing or whatever it is and we're sitting there figuring out how we can either maybe do fish where it's allowed or I think, was it Louisiana where they allow alligator? Oh, yeah. And just there's other weird stuff like that. But I mean, to be fair, they allow everything. So, yeah. But we take the inconvenience because the inconveniences are all reminders of different. God gave everything for us. And we're, here we are giving these very, very tiny, like, pittance. Like, uh, I don't know how many people stop to consider um, what we owe back and how little we actually give. You took the, the words out of my mouth. Uh, this gets easier when you do it with purpose, purpose of reparations. Um, when you are mindful of just how fallen you are, but just by nature or by things you've actually done. Uh, these are such small ways we can give back. I always equated it to like a really just bad drawings. Like the kids will give you, you know, it's just, bunch of construction paper like that's all we're really doing i'm just slopping some stuff on the fridge and hoping god likes it and um you know the effort alone and the, the heart put into it is uh is my my meager uh attempt at it but the fast days have been pared down so much um but they used to be, they're they're supposed to be in conjunction with the holy days you fast before the holy day. Uh, vigils if you're going to have a vigil you're prep so you can be united properly with christ on your feast day is you do a vigil the day before and your mental preparation and cleansing. Uh, and honestly, it's, it, there's a strengthening that comes with it too. Uh, Lent is a whole different animal when you decide you're going to go and abstain and fast all the days, but Sundays, it's a whole different thing. You mean the way it used to be? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cause our Sundays are celebratory days. That's when Christ rose from the dead. Um, but outside of that, in Lent, we're supposed to be looking at fasting and abstaining because it's supposed to be hard. It's supposed to hurt. And we're supposed to be getting closer and closer to Christ in those times. And to be perfectly honest, even Advent. There's the prep in Advent yes. as well, where we're supposed to be in that mode of preparation for Christ's arrival. And we do the same thing. So, or at least something similar. So all of those preparations get us in the proper physical, mental, and spiritual position, posturing, so that we can be more closely united with Christ. It's a beautiful thing. I'm just going to plant a seed for anyone who's listening to this, where some of this may be brand new. The Holy Mother Church has given us the calendar, uh, almost by design, to help us through these cycles, to help us through the years, help us through our lives, so that we can more closely align ourselves with Christ is the goal before we die. Um, today, uh, for reasons we're not going to get into in this podcast, I guess, but, uh, it's been, it's been kind of slipping further and further away in my mind to, uh, more uh, austere times in the, in the Catholic mind. And Advent has become essentially a pre-Christmas, right? We just 
we blow the whole thing leading up to Christmas. By the time Christmas hits, you're so sick of it. You're tired of the music. You just you dump everything out of the living room just as Christmas is starting, right? So we've we've just inverted everything. Lent's the same thing uh, in the Novus Ordo world. Um, I, I did not see Lent strictly adhered to. And it was like, oh, we got to eat fish this Friday or it's like, really? You're doing this four times a year. Abstinence is every Friday, uh, with exception with your confessor and some other, you know, finer points. In the there. current canon law. In the current canon law. But if you're not actively replacing it with something that uh, your confessor has, uh, or spiritual director has worked out with you, uh, the default mode is abstinence. Um, oh, and fasting. Oh, fasting, well, yeah. I guess it depends which ones, but yeah, at a minimum, yes, you have your abstinence from meat on Fridays. Yeah. Yep, all days, all Fridays of the year. But yeah, fasting's been pared down to two very meager days, and uh, even then, it's like the end of the world for some people. So, speaking of fasting, question 287. Who are obliged to observe the fast days of the church? All baptized persons between the ages of 21 and 59 are obliged to observe the fast days of the church unless they are excused or dispensed. To be fair, this was printed in 1941. I think those ages have changed under the current code of canon law. They probably have. So I think it's 18 now, 18 through 59. Um, and abstinence, I believe, is 14 off the top of my head. But we have yeah, to look that up. Consult your spiritual director and consider what you can possibly do to be united with Christ. This is what prayers and penances and penances are always good. So us talking about penances here of fasting, it's a good thing to do, figure out whether you can do it. And uh, I highly recommend it. Um, question 288, what is a day of abstinence? A day of abstinence is a day on which we are not allowed the use of meat. Now the exception here is that local customs are different in terms of what they still allow and consider not to be meat on Fridays. So, Fish is the one we hear all the time, but like I was saying, in some places, I think it was Louisiana, if I remember correctly, is alligator is uh, authorized on Fridays. It was it Canada somewhere where they had beaver. I was actually so, where yeah. it could be eaten on Fridays, and there's just weird stuff like that. But again, the whole point is the inconvenience. That's the penance. The penance is you didn't get what you wanted, and then for some people, like who I know, like my wife is like this. I know there are other people, but they. Uh, don't mind fasting like they go long periods of time without food and they're just like yeah it's easy for me those individuals uh even though they can do some of this relatively easy really need to be figuring out if they're wanting to offer penance they need to figure out the things they are attached to and cut those out as well um, it's it, got to hurt a little bit yeah, somewhere otherwise it won't have the same efficacy and to be fair to all the people in louisiana i love your cuisine everything is delicious there the crawdads man <sighs> they're so good everything so, question 289. Who are obliged to observe the abstinence days of the church? All Catholics who have passed their 14th birthday and have attained the use of reason are obliged to observe the abstinence days of the church unless excused or dispensed. So, yeah, consult whatever the, the current time frame is, but it's about that day. I, I think that still may be the same, honestly. I, it sounds right. I, I know for younger kids, I never excluded them from abstinence. We don't. It's just better to train them early, and by the time they're 14, it's, it's second nature. So then, let's see, question 290. Why does the church command us to fast and to abstain? The church commands us to fast and abstain in order that we may control the desires of the flesh, raise our minds more freely to God, and make satisfaction for sin. Now, prayer is a good way to 
make amends. Masses are a great way to make amends. Confession, sacraments, way to make amends. The Eucharist, another way to make amends. But then we're sitting here talking about the penances that come from fasting and abstinence. Um, these again, if you, this is why you have saints that do hair shirts. Uh, you have the, uh, what is it? The, I'm going to pronounce the word wrong. Uh, the flagellants, flagellants, the ones who would actually, oh yeah, would scourge themselves. Yeah, themselves. Yeah. They inflicting pain to sit there and say, look, Christ suffered more in how many hours than we suffer in our entire lifetime. And this includes the martyrs because at least the martyrs had sinned. Whereas by contrast, Christ did not sin at all. And all of his punishments were unjust from his standpoint for what he did. The only reason it was just is from the standpoint of his choice to offer that sacrifice to buy us back, (laughs) which means we are the ones who deserved all of it. And now we're getting pieces of what are deserved, but none of us will ever suffer what he did. So any of these things we can give back to get more closely aligned to him in that cross Um, We have so many opportunities to fully grasp and to fully experience and to gain the graces that are attached to that sacrifice. Yeah, we absolutely deserve everything we get. But keep in mind, if if you go into it with the mindset, uh, this is a positive tool uh, to help us to do the reparations. It helps us to gain, uh, gain in the race of perfection before we die. And also scripturally, if you really want to take it to another I guess another level, Scripture teaches that some some demons can only really be fought by prayer and fasting. Uh, so if you're struggling in a spiritual warfare sense in your life um, and you're not seeing much result, you might want to do the combo, you know, one-two punch. It works very well, to be perfectly honest. Like if you're having those moments where you are struggling, you don't have a good attitude, you lose your temper, uh, you succumb to weakness, honestly the fasting and offering the fasting up while combining it with prayer and meditation, that offering to God, especially if you do it through the blessed mother, uh, surefire it, you're going to, you're going to be able to lick it. It'll work out. All right. Question 291. Why does the church make Fridays of Lent days of abstinence? The church makes Fridays of Lent days of abstinence in order that we may do penance for our sins. And also in order that we may prepare ourselves more worthily for good Friday when we commemorate the death of Jesus Christ. This is why we talk about the canon law actually currently having it so there is abstinence every single Friday because then every Friday becomes Good Friday. It's the same reason why we celebrate every Sunday. Every Sunday is when he is rising from the dead. It's awesome. It just makes sense. Yeah, logic. And then lastly here, question 292, how can we know the days appointed for fast and abstinence? We can know the days appointed for fast and abstinence from the instructions of our bishops and priests. The USCCB for us here in the United States publishes all this stuff. Um, Sometimes it can be confusing, but at the same token, you have your priests you can talk to. And honestly, the more you read the fathers, the more you look at church history, the doctors and all this other stuff, it becomes more second nature and you're just aware you're paying attention. But uh, to be a Catholic requires us to be attentive in our daily lives. We need to take care to cross T's and dot I's and live well, virtuously, in a disciplined fashion. And that then leaves us to, let's watch what the calendar says and listen to all the the guys in charge. Yeah, you care about the calendar when it becomes part of your life. And I I think that's a, a pretty good 
uh, metric, you know, just take, take stock of your daily existence. You know, are you going through the motions, going to mass once a week? I mean, that is way better than a lot of Catholics I've met. Um, but you can up the game, you know, are you praying every day? Are you doing your morning offering? Uh, are you setting a time, uh, aside at night for meditation? Um, rosary, rosary. That's pretty big. Uh, are you, are you following the abstinence laws on Friday? Right. And not making excuses. Well, you know, I'll just say a couple of Hail Marys and I'll just eat this pepperoni pizza. It doesn't really make up for three hours and dying on the cross. <laughs> no. So you can do better. And that's really what uh, I'm trying to say here. If you can do better, uh, you start focusing daily, as Pete just said. All of a sudden, the calendar starts to matter and the weeks start to matter. And uh, your mindset starts to become more calibrated of being a full-time Catholic, uh, which is really what it takes. Uh, it's hard enough as it is. Don't make it harder by skipping out on the things that are designed to help you through life and you become more holy. It's my harsh words for the night, Pete. <laughs> tough talk. Tough love. Well, there you go. So we don't have any more tough love tonight. Uh, we're going to close it out there. So that being the end of the lesson. So next time we're going to talk about the third, fourth, and fifth, and sixth precepts of the church. So that'll be lesson 22. But for now, we thank you all for listening. Hopefully this was helpful. If you have issues, um, please throw us comments down below. Contact us however you can. Uh, make sure, as we said before, uh, if you liked the video, if it was helpful, throw a like on there and like, give it a thumbs up. Uh, make sure to follow us or check us out on the Restoring the Faith channel. And uh, yeah, so that'll about do it for today. Thanks again and uh, hope to talk to you soon. So in the meantime, St. Joseph, pray for us.